Prestige listeners. Uh, it is once again I, Derek. I'm here as always uh, with my co-host Danny Bessner. Hello, Danny. Hello, Derek. And why don't you uh, tell the crowd why you sound like such shit? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sitting in the dark with no power, and so I'm calling into this meeting, uh, having already been all set to go with the usual recording rig. Uh, there's not a drop of rain in the sky, or not a cloud in the sky, not a drop of rain on the ground, but our power has gone out anyway. So this, uh, um, uh, possibly, it is possibly the beginning of the storm. Uh, Q may have, have prophesied this, I don't know, uh, but we'll, well, I'll let you know. If there's somebody storms into my house later, I'll give you an update. Everyone, Derek is just a black screen with a glint of glasses showing. It's very, it's very haunting, but it's good. It, it, it makes sense for the theme we're going to discuss today. That's right. So we're joined, uh, very lucky to be joined uh, by novelist, writer, uh, podcast guest extraordinaire, Jacob Bacharach. Hello, Jacob. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, and Matt Christman of the Chapo Trap House podcast and Three-time returning champion. You're our first uh, third third-time guest. That's that's exciting. Very honored. Very honored. Thank you. <laughs> Matt has been on forty percent of our episodes. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we're here uh, because, uh, frankly, I think the the content of this podcast has been a little heavy, uh, and so we're here to discuss something that is very much not heavy. Uh, a, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Gary Kasparov, you may be familiar with Gary Kasparov is the, uh, chess champion slash resistance icon, hashtag the resistance icon, uh, wrote an article about, uh, in commemoration of Columbus Day and about how all you people who call it Indigenous People's Day and, uh, rip on Christopher Columbus are assholes and should be, uh, ashamed of yourselves. Um, and this is a, this is the long walk to get to why I, I thought we should do this episode. But, uh, immediately, as soon as this, uh, article sort of hit the, uh, the internet and hit social media, people started to, uh, make some funny comments about Gary Kasparov's, uh, connection to what is called the new chronology. Uh, this is a, uh, Russian pseudo historical conspiracy, uh, kind of conglomerate Thing that Kasparov has expressed some uh, affinity toward in the past. And so the idea of him writing this kind of uh, uh, bullshit take on Columbus, I guess, triggered everybody to uh, bring up his connection to the, the new chronology. Um, I thought, you know, having, having seen that and had my memory jarred and been reminded of this thing, I thought it would make a nice uh, topic for a little, uh, uh, shall we say, less heavy uh, episode of the podcast that we could uh, put out for our subscribers. So uh, I was very excited to learn that Jacob uh, knows something about the new chronology because it's not an area that I can talk about uh, in any detail, but I was very excited to learn that he, he knows something about it. And I was very excited that Matt was able to come on the show. Uh, so I'm going to start by uh, turning it over to Jacob, especially because I'm tired of sitting here in a dark room talking. Uh, Jacob, can you uh, take us through the basic outlines of the new chronology. What is it? Sure. So the new chronology um, is a um, pseudoscientific uh, recasting of the written history of the world um, promulgated by a, a Russian, uh, for, former Soviet Russian mathematician named um, Anatoly uh, Fomenko, and a couple of co-authors who came aboard uh, a little bit later on. And uh, we'll, we'll get into all of the, or at least some of the strange details probably later on. And, and it's, it's expansive, so I don't even know half of the details. Um, but effectively, the theory, um, which draws on a variety of other works dating really all the way back to the, the um, 17th century, um, posits that uh, basically... The majority of what we consider um, pre-modern history is a fabrication. Um, that the events which we ascribe to classical antiquity in particular either did not occur or actually occurred in a very brief several hundred year period occurring around the time of the early Middle Ages in Europe. That 
many of the historical characters uh, and personages who appear in the Bible, particularly in the New Testament, um, were in fact Greco-Russo-Turk characters who lived uh, in the what we would probably call the uh, beginning of the late Middle Ages, um, that most of world history centers around a uh, what, what they call the Russian Horde, which is a Russo-Turkish empire which ruled the majority of the Asian landmass, um, and that all of this can be adduced um, basically through a, a method of statistical reasoning. Um, which we can get into uh, maybe a little bit later as well, because it's, it's really funny how they claim to build this model. The, the, the upshot of the whole thing is that recorded history began around the year 800 AD. Um, there was no classical antiquity. Um, the uh, What we take to be history, the chronology of basically anything that occurred before about the year 1500, was a fabrication by Benedictine monks, the Vatican, and a variety of other uh, shadowy calls, uh, most not the Jews, not the Uh, Jews. Yeah. The the Jews go pretty much unscathed. uh, Wow. This is pretty progressive. Yeah. I might, I might be a convert to the new uh, chronology. I I like what they're selling. Yeah. Um, uh, there's a space for me. Finally. (laughs) Conspiracy. (laughs) Yeah. There's, there's, there's a place for us. Uh, representation matters. (laughs) So that's that's like the high, that's the high level that's the high level overview. Um, this this um, mathematician, two mathematicians, his, his co-author, a guy named um, Glebnisovsky, um, uh, basically um, came upon these sort of revisionist chronologies um, uh, through another kind of earlier twentieth century Russian source. Um, they began to take them a little bit more seriously, and then, as I said, they concocted this absolutely hilarious and very complex statistical. Um, mechanism for basically claiming that the reason history seems like it's so long is because um, multiple events which appear to occur um, in sequence, in fact, occurred simultaneously, it, or were the same event, um, all proven by statistical reasoning. Um, and there we go. That's the new So that problem. seems pretty airtight to me. Basically, imagine it. Imagine history as like a, a, a conventional history as an accordion. The new chronology squeezes the accordion together, brings it all into one space. Yes, so it makes quite a, a racket doing so. Well, the, so, yeah, I mean, the argument is sort of if you look at uh, different historical accounts and they seem to correspond with one another in any way, that what you're actually reading are two different accounts of the same series of events, right? I mean, it's like. Uh, and he looks at, you know, uh, different periods of Italian history and decides that they all run in parallel. So they must just be different versions of the same sequence of events. Yeah. For example. Well, yeah. And, and, and not, not just that, um, not just within, um, uh, uh, the sort of reasonably small geography of something like, yeah, let's say Renaissance Italy. Where, where you could at, at least on a case by case basis, you know, perhaps make some sort of historical case that, you know, maybe in the, in the historic record of that period before the advent of like modern historiography, maybe sure, some things got repeated or some, uh, individuals, uh, were uh, treated as being separate individuals when in fact they were the same person on a very limited basis. That might be true. But I mean, here, like one of the claims, for example, is that the like Jesus, the historic Jesus figure, um, is a composite figure uh, composed of the Old Testament prophet Elisha, Pope Gregory VII, St. Basil of uh, Caesarea, uh, Li Yanhua, who was uh, an emperor of Western Xia in China, um, and that all of those people's attributes were then combined and attributed to an actual real-life guy um, called Andronikos, who was uh, a <laughs> Russo-Greek born in Crimea and ultimately... Yeah, 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 and and ultimately, um, ultimately crucified um, in uh, in the historic city of Troy, which uh, is in Turkey, in modern day Turkey, um, which so, is also Jerusalem. I mean, it's all it's amazing. It's a stew. It's like a nice stew of everything you got in the refrigerator tossed in here for uh, 
for to make a story. The important thing is just make make the Russians more relevant. You got to do it. That's what I was going to ask, Matt. I was actually going to ask you. So this seems to me to be a product of uh, this guy's born in 45, Anatoly Fomenko, uh, and he really rises to prominence, it seems to be, in the 1990s. Um, and this is, of course, the moment of, of Russian decline uh, and, and shock therapy in, into the former Soviet right. Union. So, um, I, I, Matt, I know you're someone who, think, who thinks historically and things like that. So what do you think the longing this, this seems to be like such an obvious psychological longing to place the, the, the Russians at the center of history at the very moment when, when history truly ended for them. It's, it's yeah. the end of history from the other side, as some might yeah, say. Right. I don't know. What do you think about that? Yeah, because at the very moment that Russia is, is being forced to accept their ancillary role in the world, in the world uh, they're no longer going to be able to assert power and, and direct the flow of history. Uh, then they have to fall back on something and uh, c- conventional history of Western civilization uh, doesn't really have a lot for the Russians to do. Uh, so th- this is a good way to to reimagine history in a way that may, g- that reasserts the centrality uh, of Russia to to the human historical project. Which is a funny thing. A funny thing when you think about it, because um, while well, while well, I think that that, that kind of um, that sort of psychological sketch of, of the rationale strikes me as accurate, you know, at the same time, like any serious student of certainly of modern history, like pretty much recognizes the centrality of uh, of Russia to to that history. Um, so it's a it's a it's a funny kind of project um, to sort of make one of the sort of fundamental. Um, axes around which world history for the last thousand years has revolved into an even more important axis of world history to, to the extent that you claim that the Roman Empire never existed. In well, what's really interesting to me, what that seems like to me, and obviously to do some art, armchair psychologizing, is that during the Cold War, Russia, one of the main things that the Soviet Union did was present itself as sort of a civilizational anchor. Like, like even though in actual history, you know, the, the, the Russian space, you know, going back to Poland, Lithuania in the 13th century has always been interacting with what became Western and Central Europe. But during the Cold War, both sides sort of constructed alternative civilizational paths. And in the U.S., you get like Judeo-Christianity, which was essentially invented during World War II to be a thing. Uh, and then in the, Soviet, uh, in the Soviet side, you get sort of the Russian axis of history. And so what it seems to me in this, in this way, what the new chronology is almost trying to do is sort of to de-civilizationize the Western victors in the Cold War by claiming that all civilization ultimately traces back to this Russian empire that is in a moment of decline in, in, the, in the 1990s, but through which all history history passes. And so that leads me, I mean, and I, I genuinely just don't know about this. Like, why would someone like Kasparov be attracted to this? Like, what are what are his politics? I, I, I see his name pop up and it seems like kind of reactionary. But what is this guy thinking? Why would someone with that profile be attracted to this approach? Because he's like kind of a defector in a sense, but he's also like his life. It's, it's interesting. His life is made as sort of a Russian in the United States. And that's an interesting positionality. Yeah, I. So I think that the. So first of all, if you if you if you pay attention to Garrett Kasparov um, and and particularly to his pronouncements on politics, um, he's definitely he's definitely in that sort of um, you know don't believe don't believe what you're told. A- ask questions, question the narrative kind kind of guy, which you know can lead people into it into some true revelations, um, you know, like particularly about the uh, conduct of the United States of America in the globe over the last uh, 250 years, um, but can also lead you into some very funny places. And, and Kasparov, whenever he's, he was a little more in the, in the 90s, he was a little more sort of openly curious about the new chronology. And since then, partly because he's come under a lot of criticism for it, he sort of backed off a bit and said, well, you know, I'm... I'm just saying we need to ask questions and we need to question official narratives in history. There's one thing I learned as a Soviet citizen. It's that history can be changed, and weaponized for the purposes of, uh, of control again, which is, which is true. Um, at, uh, th- but you can take that, that 
that's that sort of um, legitimate questing into a sort of um, crackpot contrarianism in which, in some ways, I think the, the more revisionist and the more far out the theory and the more um, tentacular and ubiquitous the conspiracy is, the more attractive it becomes. And so, so I think that it's kind of, you know, it's a person who uh, wants to question narratives, but is not being parsimonious at all in, in terms of what, what is and is not true. Um, and so, uh, so for it, so is willing to buy, for instance, into this idea that, yeah, the, the Russian board controlled the Eurasian landmass and, and, uh, was never under the Mongol yoke, for example, you know, or that, um, the sort of Western history of Christianity is basically a history of fabrication and that the true history of Christianity is not only more recent than we've been told, but is fundamentally Greco-Russian therefore Orthodox, rather than Western and Catholic. Which builds precisely on the Soviet civilizational model, in a sense, right? It's it's an update for a post-Soviet world. And I was wondering, why do you guys think the, the, the fact... The chronological aspect of it is what's very interesting to me because it's usually when you get revisionist histories, it's t- taking like the basic chronology of what we uh, suspect the last 5,000 years or so has been. But why do you think this this focus on a transformation in the chronology that it actually happened way more recently than what you know the mainstream would have you believe? The chronological focus is interesting. Well, so... I kind of mentioned in my somewhat rambling introduction, this is a theory that actually has roots that stretch back um, pretty far in Western Europe. So, you know, um, the the history of chronology um, as a sort of um, sub-discipline of history, I guess, you know, really begins um, in the church and begins um, with efforts dating all the way back to the very earliest days of the church, you know, to like some of the, the Greek church fathers um, uh, before even the organization of the Western church. And, you know, as an attempt to basically um, uh, calculate and understand the, um, the chronological history of the world as told from creation in the Old Testament. And so you, you know, beginning with like scholars like um, Eusebius um, and, and St. Jerome, they begin basically trying to create, to line up the events, the birthdays, etc., as described in the Old Testament to create these chronologies. And these continue to be elaborated going right up, um, right up into the Middle Ages until you have actually uh, in the sort of very early modern period, I guess in the late, late 16th, early 17th century, you have this um, French Calvinist um, named uh, Joseph Scalinger, Scalinger, um, who basically constructs the first real chronology of Western history, um, including sort of biblical times, classical antiquity from original classical sources that have um, uh, been unearthed or rediscovered um, during the Renaissance, as well as contemporaneous historical accounts. So he he does this, and it forms basically the basis of of um, of chronology until modern methods are invented. You know by German archaeologists sometimes. Leopold von Ranke, yeah. the 19th century, a father <laughs> of history, Leopold um, von Ranke. So, okay, so this French guy, this French Calvinist constructs this um, uh, this um, uh, timeline and it, almost immediately you begin seeing um, these, uh, these, revision, these revisionists who basically um, come in and start saying that the classical sources are spurious, um, the attribution of things to um, uh, to ancient times, classical antiquity, um, are inaccurate. That these things occurred uh, more closely to the present than we suspected them. That the age of the world is perhaps not as as long as uh, some of these still religious, but nevertheless, like somewhat more more modern uh, folks were beginning to suspect. Um, and so, you know, uh, in the in the 17th and 18th century, there's a bunch of revisionist chronology that goes on in Europe, in England, um, in France, um, in Germany. All of this stuff somehow gets rediscovered by this um, crackpot um, Russian <laughs> named Nikolai Morozov, who's a fascinating character. Um, 
he's this communist revolutionary. He was like a member of the circle of Tchaikovsky. Um, he wrote for like land and liberty. Um, and he, What's the circle of Tchaikovsky? Forgive my ignorance. They, uh, the circle of Tchaikovsky was like a, a pre-revolutionary sort of like intellectual salon for, um, for, for communists, for communists. And socialists of various stripes in the sort of like, I think around the like 1880s or 1890s. Oh, okay. Um, so in its formation, pre-Bolshevik mentioned yeah, yeah, split pre- early, early. So this guy, this guy was yeah. born in like 18, in the 1850s. So he, he eventually runs afoul of the, of the Tsar um, he gets imprisoned in the Peter and Paul who Fortress. Who doesn't? Hall. Yeah, he doesn't. He gets imp- imprisoned in the Peter and Paul Fortress for a while. He goes into exile, where he spends in um, in England and Germany, where he actually meets and becomes acquaintances with Karl Marx. Um, he eventually returns to Russia, um, participates in the revolution, then becomes a scholar. As a scholar in the seventeen revolution in nineteen seventeen, not nineteen oh five. Yeah, yeah, yeah okay. in the seventeen revolution. So, so he's an old man. He's in his 70. He's he, almost 70. At uh, he's, uh, pro- he's got to be, so he's born in 54. So yeah, he, yeah, he's uh, 63. He's yeah. in his sixties. Then <clears throat> he, after the, after the revolution, um, he goes off to, um, to Petrograd and, um, uh, works at an academic institution there. He begins to do research and develop these theories that the Christian chronology, uh, promulgated by the Scalinger figure. Is all wrong. Um, eventually, Morozov becomes the oldest sniper in the Red Army in World War II. <laughs> this is a great story. It's oh incredible. Um, in his eighties and nineties, <laughs> he was he was eighty eight years old when he enlisted in the Red Army Jesus. and became a sniper. Um, was he was he plunking it? dudes in a rocking chair? <laughs> <laughs> no, he. I mean, he. In, I think he invented a, a telescopic sight for for you know sniper rifles. Yeah, of, he was of his he, own design, and and like insisted on being allowed to to serve as a sniper in, in the siege of Stalingrad. Yeah, he was he was an early contributor. He was a member of the Russian Aeronautic Society in the in the teens. Uh-huh. I mean, he's. He's, he did a little bit of everything, and eventually he dies at the age of ninety-two after um, a- after the war. Um, that is an awesome time for an old communist to die. Jesus Christ! <laughs> just, like you just defeated fascism. The Soviet Union controls it. He must have. He died happy. Good yeah. for him. So you know, he, he died at the height. So so he wrote he wrote two two books about that revised the Christian chronology. What one of them called Revelations in Storm and Tempest. And one of them called the prophets, and he in those books he dated a lot of biblical work, uh, biblical occurrences to more modern times. And then, uh, lo and behold, like uh, <laughs> another 25, 40 years later, this Russian mathematician um, Anatoly Fomenko rediscovers these works, um, takes them up. What year? What year does he rediscover them? Do you know? Because I, I do feel like that's crucial. Is I, I, it in the mid eighties or mid nineties? It was in the mid eighties. Um, okay, so it's like hyper normalization Russia. Yeah, you know, Soviet. Hi, like the Soviet was, Union's ordering armies that don't go anywhere. Yeah, weird, was, weird it, time. It was before the it was before the collapse, obviously. Um, but it, yeah, it was in the eighties. He, he wrote some articles about it before he ultimately wrote this monstrous seven volume collection of books um, called uh, uh, History, Fiction, or Science. Um, and, uh, what he developed over this period of time between when he began to be interested and when he ultimately wrote these books is a, um, statistical methodology where they concluded that, see if I can describe this, that the more important events in history were more notable and therefore developed and therefore are treated at greater length in works of history or works of historiography. So written works of history treat important events um, at greater length than less important events. And they treat important years at greater length than less important years. So they basically concocted, in effect, an algorithm that compared the amount of time and the amount of pages that works of history spent on different historical occurrences, and then, in effect, ran a fairly primitive statistical analysis that compared the amount of pages devoted to different, supposedly, in their view, supposedly disparate events, 
and if they were statistically similar enough, concluded that those events were probably the same. Even um, it is it is amazing. It's like if um, yeah, I mean if if it's like if Nate Silver were like an ex-Soviet mathematician and was concocting the malmeter or, or whatever his his um, aggregate of all poles is, but as a mechanism for comparing all of history and then saying there's a 74% chance uh, that Romulus and Ulysses were the same person. <laughs> it's incredible. Based on based on a, a very strange analysis of length of treatment in written history, which is extraordinarily weird. It's, it's, this is, sounds kind of like uh, historical sabermetrics. Yes. Like, like these guys are getting in there with Nate Silver, really wrestling with the data. Yeah. They're, they're, you got to aggregate all of the works of history and then, uh, and compare them. And by aggregating them and comparing them, you can determine which of them are likely to be the same. And in so doing, they, if, if you ever look at the books, un- unfortunately, podcasting is a, is a, not a visual medium. But if you look at the, at the books that they wrote, there are these really um, beautiful, they almost look like um, economists graphs, but these great kind of like, to use your analogy, Matt, like little like accordion diagrams that show where history compresses and expands and shows in so doing by putting those things side by side, how these seemingly disparate events at disparate periods actually occurred at the same time and were therefore the same event. So, um, this, this leads me to ask, how do they respond to the obvious critiques uh, and criticisms? And what has the attraction been? It, it, it seems very strange to me. Like, the, the critiques of this are obvious. So what's their response? Uh, well, their response... The critique would be, the, this makes absolutely no sense. There's no correlation <laughs> or connection between length of historical treatment and when something happened in time. Uh, and why, why would this algorithm tell us anything about true chronology? Yeah, well, um, the answer is, I think, and I I think it's apt that we're talking about them in comparison to modern um, statisticians and economists, maybe, because I think, you know, first of all, they basically say, and speaking of things being spurious, they basically say that any, um, any contribution from outside of their own analysis is itself spurious. Um, So like, radiocarbon dating is just not true. Um, uh, well, I'll do it. Yeah. You know, tree, (laughs) tree ring chronology is, is simply not true. Right. Um, that their, that their analysis, that, that all that exists is textual analysis and that, um, anything that appears to contradict it, you know, in fact, does not, not only does not contradict it, but, um, but, but proves it, it demonstrates it. And, and so, uh, you know, the psychology for why people believe it. I don't know. Why, why are people flat earthers? I, I think that it's, I think that it's, it's obscurantism and it's incredibly radical departure from the accepted, uh, the sort of like accepted progression of history, particularly of, of history in the Christian West, um, is attractive precisely because it's so, um, because it so radically upends in, in, in the minds of its adherents, um, everything that everything you've been taught is wrong. Everything you've been told is wrong. The figures of authority have pulled a, a veil over your eyes and a secret history lies just beyond it, um, which if you can apprehend it, um, it gives you not just a sort of special knowledge, but a special power. Even though, in fact, you're just some weirdo reading a seven volume multi-thousand page um fake history that among other things proposes that the uh, like the Habsburgs were in fact the Khanate of Novgorod I mean it's uh, it's amazing <laughs> when you further you dig in What's so interesting to me is that it reminds me a lot of the Bible code. Do you guys remember that? Remember that in the mid nineteen nineties when someone would do it like an algorithmic analysis of the entire Tanakh, uh, and then they would say like Bibi Netanyahu will become prime minister in nineteen ninety seven, or Yitzhak. I remember a big one. Yitzhak Rabin would be murdered by Yigal Amir. Um, and so, but what I mean by that is because it's doing two things that you don't usually see. Um, 
come together, which is one hand, you have the extreme fetishization of quantification, which is like the modern condition. And uh, Theodore Porter, for listeners uh, who are interested, wrote a really interesting book called Trust in Numbers, which shows like why numbers in particular became sort of fetish objects for, for modernity, where someone like Nate Silver could claim to, you know, algorithmically determine human behavior in a meaningful way. This is, on one hand, a dream of modernity, and that's always connected to uh, unlocking something secret. Um, but what's interesting is that in this case, and also in the case of the Bible code, is that it's a quantitative analysis of text. So you have the extreme fetishization of writing and text, which is usually placed in contradiction, actually, to quantitative analysis, right? I, I'm a professor, and so what you usually see, for example, is, you know, STEM and the humanities put on opposite sides of the equation. And in some sense, this is like, it's like the digital humanities, you know, it's, it's foreshadowing the digital humanities, and, and that is doing the, this heavy quantity, quant analysis. Analysis of this text, um, and which seems to me it's almost dialectical uh, in, in its approach. And I wonder if that's a part of its appeal, the, the way that it brings everything in um, from different perspectives. I mean, that's more of a comment than a question, but it seems like uh, an, an important aspect of this whole thing. Yeah, I, I go ahead. Sorry. No, go ahead, Jacob. I, I have another parallel to draw. But oh, ahead. yeah. Well, I, I, I do wonder too if. If there is a bit of, um, I, I, I agree with what you say, but I, I also wonder if there's an element, there's a bit of a post-Soviet element there as well. Um, because, uh, I can say actually many fairly admirable things about Soviet Union, but, um, what, one thing that is certainly true, um, is that there, there was there as well a sort of, um, a fetishization for, for quantitative analysis, um, despite, um, the, you know, Many contributions to the humanistic disciplines of the Russians and, and the Soviets, um, and I, I do wonder if you know, lacking some of the, um, at least during the Soviet period, having some of the you know mechanisms of sort of textual analysis that became popularized in the West, um, including around like historiography, basically not not being knowable or teachable. If the idea of exposing these kind of um, these historical textual documents to this kind of um, rigorous mathematical and scientific analysis, um, which is certainly something that the Soviets were very, very good at, um, also plays into the fact that these these kind of post-Soviet mathematicians um, basically presumed that they could apply the same mechanisms that they apply to like complex problems in topography to complex problems in historical discrepancy. Yeah, and famously in the Soviet Union, particularly the earlier Soviet Union, a lot of like people who might have gotten into what might be called like a critical theory or critical social theory were pushed toward the sciences. That's like a historical phenomenon that, that historians, I believe, have exposed. So that might also be part of it. But has this become part of like internet lore? Matt, have you, in, in your traipsing through the internet, did you ever, have you ever come across this shit in like history internet? Because I think I had like glimpsed it, but never, you know, straight on. I've only seen it commented on from outside. I don't encounter enough uh, enough Slavic irredentists to, to <laughs> have encountered this straight. It's a niche. Head on. It's a niche group. Exactly. Like that's uh, your first. Problem. I probably have my like probably seen it mostly in you know YouTube comments for videos of uh, the Serbian artillery being guided by God or something, but not not directly because yeah, it is. It has a very specific provincial motivation that uh is not necessarily going to grab uh western crackpots you know there's a there's a theory and now now that i'm uh, back on a decent recording and and the lights are back on hey uh, i can talk about this <laughs> yeah uh, <laughs> just to update the the listeners um th- when i when i was reading about this and the the sort of uh russian nationalist aspects of it it, it really uh, paralleled to me, this is a little more esoteric, but there's a uh, movement that ha- took place in Turkey uh, after World War One, after the collapse of the Ottoman Empire as the, the Turkish Republic was forming. Um, there was a lot of work done to a kind of, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, in terms of Turkish nationalism, kind of uh, to to kind of pump up the idea of the Turks as a, a, a historical, you know, dominating type of people. Um, but there was also a, a considerable amount of work that was that went into kind of de 
Arabizing and de-Persianizing the Turkish language. Um, and so what happened was you had a lot of scholars going into the, the vocabulary and trying to excise these loan words from the Turkish language, which of course, for people who had spent their entire lives speaking Ottoman Turkish, which is heavily inflected with Arabic and Persian, suddenly like they were illiterate, like they couldn't, and they couldn't communicate anymore in the official, uh, the new Turkish. Uh, so what, what happened was uh, a scholar in in, in uh, you know, one of the uh, Turkish universities came up with a theory. It's called the Sun Language Theory, uh, which postulated that all language went back to this primordial um, need for human beings to describe. Uh, religious totems and the first religious totem would have been the sun. And so they needed a word to describe the sun to worship. And it just so happened under this theory that the first people to look up and try to worship the sun were the Turks. <laughs> and so the Turks and Turkish was the font of all languages, basically. Like this was the first spoken language, which meant that not only were the Turks kind of the, the you know, Uber, kind of the earliest people to to speak and therefore kind of the, the root of all human civilization. Uh, but it also meant that all these loan words, these Arabic and Persian loan words that had been kicked out of the Turkish language could be brought back in and suddenly you were, it was okay to speak them again because, in fact, they were all Turkish words. All words are Turkish. Uh, if you cut <laughs> That's so interesting. And it's, it's, it really reminded me of that. That's one of the, these, like, wild um, theories that have happens at the fall of a, an empire, basically, where you, you're sort of uh, scrambling for meaning and trying to, to remind yourselves that uh, this this is a great society that we live in and we have a great history and you, you latch on to stuff like this. Do you think Q, I, I mean, to Derek, but really to everyone, do you think Q is reflecting something similar here, uh, some, something of that impulse, or is it appreciably different as a conspiracy theory? Because this is basically a conspiracy theory, and we live in an era of conspiracies. So I was wondering if you thought, like, you see any parallels to, to the paddle. Do you see any parallels here? I mean, everybody, there, everybody needs some way to make sense of their world and there's decreasing ability to feel like you have any real control over the narrative of life uh in you know the received understanding of the world that you're that you're presented with so if you do want to do like the work of 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 shaping the world around you and and redefining it in a way that is more emotionally satisfying you basically have to start uh, freeballing it because there's just so little uh, move. There's so little latitude uh, in, in sort of conventional understandings. So I think that what they have in common is, is they're all the product of that human urge to, to make sense of a world uh, not on the terms of sort of an alienated uh, uh, consensus but on your own individual terms and on people yeah. that you trust more. Well, I, I, I said, I think I actually, um, when Derek, when you first reached out to me about this, I, I think I said this to you in our chat and um, it's a subject that I know is uh, near and dear to Matt's heart, but, uh, but actually I, to me, one of the most interesting American parallels is actually probably Mormonism. Um, oh, hell yes. <laughs> which is, <laughs> um, <laughs> which is because, because if you look at the new chronology, I mean, the, at its historical roots, right, and 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 at its and particularly at its obsession, um, it, it, it's it's supreme interest in the sort of place of of uh, Rome and the Church and Christianity. Um, you know, it's it's effectively constructing and concocting a a, a parallel Christian a parallel Christianity, um, one that centers in in this case the sort of like Russo Slavic or or Greco-Russian, like orthodoxy, in um, in not just like the, the history of modern of, of of organized Christianity, but of of the actual like entire sort of biblical history of well, yeah, what we would call Judeo-Christianity in the U.S. And I, I see the you know that's it's not that different from, from you know Mormonism, which constructs this kind of like parallel revelation in which, well, sure, kind of that other stuff happened. I mean, you know, the Old Testament happened, and Jesus happened in the way that we were taught in the new testament but in fact there was this superseding uh, historical occurrence in america and 
the and that is in fact the central story of the of 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 Christian redemption um, and of the spiritual development of humankind. Um, and I, I think we see something parallel um, in the in this in the Russian context in the way that it basically tries to wrench the Near Eastern and Mediterranean and then ultimately Western European sort of received history of the development of Christianity uh, and, and basically say not, none of that ever happened. It, it was all it was all invented by monks in in order to uh, distract and dis- from the the true the true spiritual history of this religion and this and this civilization, um, which all occurred more like in the Black Sea area <laughs> and the Eurasian steppe. <laughs> yeah, like Mormonism is is partially a, a result of Americans trying to struggle with uh, with living a religious tradition whose whose uh, origin story was so alien to a country that in all of their minds was the center and pivot point of the human race. I mean, how do you it's a way to square that uh, incongruity. Uh, oh yeah, no, the Garden of Eden was in Missouri actually. <laughs> yeah. And, and 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 Russia, you know, in Russia, start dating back to like the 16th century, you know, there's been this kind of um this notion of of the Russians and of Moscow as the sort of like successor to Rome, you know. So there's the famous, you know, there's there have been three Romes, Rome, Byzantium, and Moscow. There will not be a fourth, which is like ingrained in like real you know, orthodox like eschatology, and we that- actually say that at the beginning of every episode. <laughs> yes, <really>? absolutely. <laughs> um, <laughs> the, well, it's it's partly funny because again, the new chronology basically posits that Rome, the Rome proper, never really. I mean, it existed, but it was its history never existed. So that it's like a title, right? It's yeah. not a, a, an actual place. It's like a, a an honorific that you can give to different cities over the course of history. Yes, exactly. But but it's interesting though when you compare it to Mormonism. So uh, as a historian, this is where my mind goes. In in some sense, I think the parallels that Matt pointed out are exactly right. And and uh, Jacob, obviously, what what you said in terms of the parallel structures is correct. But they're very different moments. The mo- Mormons is obviously the moment of imperial expansion, right? The moment of, of domination and uh, domineering of this particular continent, and and sort of the Fomenkoism or or the new chronology, though it had these sort of strange organs with Morozov. Um, is really the product of almost the exact opposite moments, the, the moment of, you know, failure, the, the prophecy had failed. Um, well, I, so that's interesting uh, when you're talking about macro, but in some sense, it, they're both responding to failed prophecies, in essence. They're both... Well, and they're, I mean, I think they're all, all of these things are attempts to, to find meaning uh, in a world where you're struggling to figure out what the meaning is. And, and I mean, Mormonism... Uh, you know, partly, and I, you know, I learned this from listening to Matt's, uh, uh, podcast on Mormonism. I mean, part of Mormonism is, uh, trying to square the, the contradictions between, uh, this capitalist paradise that we're living in and Christianity, which are not really that compatible with one another. And so, you know, you have this disconnect in your head and you fill that disconnect with uh, what winds up being Mormonism. You know, it's the same thing with uh, the new chronology. It's the collapse of uh, the Soviet Union, the collapse really, you know, uh, the final end of the Russian Empire. And there's a struggle to find meaning in that. And you go to this idea of the Russian horde as the center of uh, all human history. And the the sun language uh, thing the same it is the same type of thing it's the, the at a time of collapse when people are trying to to make sense of the world yeah and i wonder i'd be curious matt what you think about this i mean i i agree that like mormonism is born at a shore during a moment of imperial expansion i mean because we're we haven't yet i mean reached the <laughs> we're still in a period of imperial expansion uh, maybe the rubber band is getting a little bit worn out but we're it's still being stretched but at the same time, it seems to me like Mormonism's birth and and certainly it's kind of like uh, early midlife actually occurred at a moment of like real like sectional schismatisms in the U.S. and um, and and real and different but different existential questions than obviously like the Soviets were asking in like the mid '80s, but nevertheless, like at a moment where the question of whether or not the sort of 
um, extant order of the United States um, would would continue as it was or, or, or effectively collapse. I mean, that's uh, why they tried to create their like desert kingdom out there or something. <laughs> right. Well, that's the thing. Yeah. When they, they, they when they did the exodus to, to, uh, to Utah at that point, it, uh, Utah was technically part of Mexico. So they were imagining that, that they could, after struggling and failing to uh, assimilate into American society, uh, uh, Joseph Smith was actually killed by a mob while he was also running for president of the United States uh, in 1844. And his followers then decided, well, if we cannot create a community of faith that is in harmony with America and maybe even convince Americans to be more like us, which was one of the key motivations of the presidential run that uh, Smith carried out, then we're going to have to do it ourselves. We're going to have to take some of that land out there and uh, make it our own. And then they were eventually just absorbed into the continually westward expanding America. But yeah, at the time, I think there was probably a hope that they'd be able to establish some sort of independent domain. Uh, but but very quickly, they got uh, eaten up. And what's interesting to me about both of these, especially as as Jacob presented it, uh, and as Matt talked about it, is that the the choice to do it through chronology to me is very interesting. It's very enlightenment. It's very rationalistic, you know. Um, and and I I wish that I was a, a historian of time, but you know uh, how people conceive of time and how people conceive of chronology is absolutely central to remaking their worldview. So it, it doesn't surprise me that both the Mormons and sort of the post-Soviet mathematicians. Um, are really trying to reconstruct like almost their ontology, you know, like uh, it, it's in some sense, an ontological revolution, exploring the very nature of being in a new way. And and that's very compelling as a thing that humans do, particularly in revolutionary moments. And my mind, of course, immediately goes to the French revolutionary calendar, you know, reforming time in moments of revolution is an absolutely central uh, thing, I think. Yeah, because if you have command over time, like you you have you have signaled your ability to to like to dictate like the terms of reality as opposed to accepting them. Yes, and it, and I think that um, the the uh, what's interesting is that this this did come at that moment of. Um, that kind of yeah ne- neoliberal shock therapy moment in in Russian history and and what's interesting is that even though like nobody you know in uh, power at least that I'm aware of uh, this theory is, has some legs in Russia I mean it's not like Russian QAnon it doesn't I don't think it has those kind of legs but it definitely has has some um, native following but it, it certainly hasn't been taken up by the um, the sort of uh, official Russian state, so to speak. But there are some things about it that do anticipate the kind of the interesting um, religious and political merger that you see occurring um, in the sort of Putin era Russia, in which the um, the sort of like entrenched power of um, the Putin oligarchic system um, and the power and wealth of the renewed um, Russian Orthodox Church have become um intertwined in a lot of ways. And the church itself has become, uh, in many ways, one of the pillars of the legitimacy of, uh, of the Putin, of the Putin centric political system there. And I think that this, some of the, the topical interests of the new chronology, even if the actual chronology itself kind of gets tossed out the window, um, provide, um, a sort of, uh, an interesting precursor and parallel to the way that the um, that the church has been sort of rehabilitated and reintegrated into the sort of capitalist Russian political system. So we actually haven't done much on the content of the new chronology. I'm sure that's a very large topic, but Jacob, what are the greatest hits? Um, because I imagine there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of humdingers uh, in, in this one that, that are pretty interesting. Yeah. The identity of Jesus is, is probably the greatest of the hits, but yeah, there, there's, there's several other ones. Yeah. I mean, uh, well, I mean, as I said, you know, I mean, the idea that, um, that kind of like the central power in world history and in Eurasian history was, 
a Russian horde. So not not the Kievan Rus, not 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 Moscow, um, not any of the actual historical kind of precursors to, to Russia, um, but like that um, a a fairly in what would in effect be a fairly like modern Russian identity, in fact, dominated like um, the Eurasian steppe throughout all, throughout all history, and that right. The people who we think were there, the, the Mongols and Scythians and all the others, were in fact <laughs> right. Russians, the Huns, the Pechenegs, the, the, the Bulgars, the Bulgars all these people they, are, are in yeah, fact Russian. They're all yeah. they're all Russian. Yeah. Um, so that's where it starts, and this is the Fomenko series. This is, essentially, this, this isn't Morozov. Yeah, this is this, this is, is the Fomenko. Yeah, this is this is Fomenko. Um, Vintage Fomenko. But, uh, yeah. So, but um, I I will um, I'll, I'll give you a, a couple examples that are that are maybe not like. I'm not going to actually call them the greatest hints. I mean, the identity of Jesus as some Greek guy born in the Crimean Peninsula uh, is pretty funny. What was it Andronicus? That's, that's and, a pretty good yeah, 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 Andronicus yeah. Comnenos. Comnenos, yeah. yeah Andronicus the uh, first. Yeah, born, born uh, in uh, 1152, and born 1,152 years after his own death. Um, <laughs> that, that, that's that's a good one. Um, I do like the fact that they say that the um, that the uh, uh, Hagia Sophia is the Temple of Solomon, and yes, that, that's a good one. And that and that actually Solomon is um, Suleiman the Magnificent. It's, it's Suleiman the Magnificent. <laughs> yeah, oh wow! Really so around one. the thousand year, yeah, yeah, it's around the early. Which is Crusades, even. I mean, yeah. that's even. I mean, that's even wilder because Suleiman. <laughs> lived 300 years after Andronicos Comnenos, so we're postulating that King Solomon was actually af- lived after Jesus. is is fascinating. Yeah, but but let me. So two of my <laughs> two of my favorite little details from from the series. So I've I've read the first book of this of of their uh, of their history um, uh, fiction or science um, volumes. Uh, the, the That's first, a septology. What's it's it called? A septo- it's, a septo- it's called. History, yeah, it's a septology, um, his, history, fiction, or science. Um, the, the first volume alone is um, uh, well over 600 pages um, and written in textbook format, too. So it's two columns of text on every page. So it is a lot of text. Um, so, but uh, a couple of my favorite, like, th- these are kind of like just little, like, off the wall claims in it. Um, but I think I mentioned earlier one is that Romulus and Ulysses were the same person. Um, and they, and that's because the founding of Rome, the, in their estimation, cannot be um, dated within 500 years and could have occurred as much as 500 years before the claim. Um, and that the Homeric um, epics um, occurred 500 or maybe even a thousand years after they were supposed to have occurred. And therefore, these two people are the same person um, and they founded Rome. And that actually happened like in the year 818. <laughs> right, so. Do you know what I think? It's interesting here because what they're doing is they're building on an insight of biblical criticism, which is that like Gilgamesh and Noah's Ark story both contain, you know, mythos yes. of, of ancient floods, right? So that's, what I think, what they're building on. There's like this insight of 19th century, you know, thing, event that they're they're now making about everything. Yeah. Uh, there's, there's also, I mean, there's also a, a repeated and, you know, I mean, Fomenko's not the only one who's who has done stuff like this, but there's there's a, a, a and this idea that you can square um, basically mythological accounts with recorded history, and so you're trying to fit Homer into the chronology somehow, and and uh, you know this this goes on um, you know on smaller scales in in other fields like uh, you know there's a lot of alternative dating theories in Egyptology to try to make the the Egyptological record match up with the Old Testament and and, and things like that. So it's, um, you know, it's something that, that recurs in these kinds of re- attempts to rewrite the timeline. I, I won't hear you say anything bad against Stargate SG-1. <laughs> <laughs> Documentary. Uh, um, but no, okay, so uh, another, uh, just another really funny one is so they um, they uh, have uh, some images in the book um, uh, of uh, Pompeian graffiti because that's so that's one of the counterexamples that they set up and knocked down like Duck and Bolt. Right? They they say well some people will say that you know look Pompeii is perfectly you know it's perfectly preserved um, uh, uh, Roman town and it 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 almost definitely definitionally like shows this um, pre modern um, uh, classical society. 
But actually, it proves quite the opposite, because if you look at the graffiti, it it demonstrates that Pompeii, yeah, it was real, but it was real in the Middle Ages, and it was destroyed by a volcano in the Middle Ages. And the way that they do this is they show several images, several bits of graffiti that were discovered at Pompeii, which appear to show um, figures in um, in uh, tall hats and robe-like garb um, pulling um, other figures um, up onto a scaffold. And they say, this is obviously, these people are obviously Catholic priests, right? They adduce from this image that these people, because of their tall hats and robes, are Catholic priests. And therefore, this occurred during the Middle Ages. Now, you guys all know that of course, Catholic priests wear what they do because they were copying the garb worn <laughs> by the Romans. It's, it's a direct line of lineage between these two things. Um, but to Fomenko, this is demonstrable proof that the this event, this this catastrophe of classical antiquity, in fact, occurred um, during what we think of as the Middle Ages. Um, and another, another one I really love is at one point, this is like a great bit of question making. They say, um, besides which, all of these accounts of Bronze Age civilization cannot possibly be true because nobody had discovered the use of metallic tin in the Bronze Age. Now, of course they had because you need tin to make bronze. But, what? But so, so according to them, Bronze wasn't <laughs> discovered until the Middle Ages. Therefore, what we attribute to Bronze Age society could not have occurred because they couldn't have produced bronze because they didn't discover tin until it was discovered in the Middle Ages, at which point all of the things that <laughs> happened during the Bronze Age actually did happen, even though they would have been happening simultaneously with Iron Age in the Age with, of Gunpowder. <laughs> right, with people wearing like iron armor and things. Yeah. That's Wait, right. just, totally, so does this, this is... mean that uh, Blackbeard is one of the sea people? <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. That's a good title for the, a book about it. The, the Bronze Age collapse was caused by Long John Silver. <laughs> <laughs> this is so wild. So this is just total off-the-wall stuff. Just really not good use of algorithms. Or a great use of algorithm. <laughs> I, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think it's the ideal use, actually, for algorithm. Yeah, have some fun with it. What else? What, are you going to learn about what actually happened? What's the fun in that? Yeah, I guess make, it's make like, Make a new how world is this, in your head. How is this different from, like, learning who, like, Matt, you know, Tywin the Brave was in, in Game of Thrones? What's yeah, exactly. his name? Yeah, it's the same. It's the same thing. Only you're doing it of- with this world instead of one that's uh, made up. That's so much cooler. Yeah, that is cooler. Have there been any like adaptations of this, like fictionalized adaptations or Russian TV shows about? It seems like this is ripe for IP. Yeah, I, not that I know of. Um, it, it would it it would be great. Um, I, I mean, I, in my mind, it would be more of a sort of like um, more of like a, a kind of um, prestige, like Russian answer to the name of the rose, um, in in which uh, you know a. a, a a brilliant scholar goes into the library and discovers that all, all of the things that he's um, he's been told uh, by his uh, religious <laughs> superiors all of his life are not are not true. Sol- solving a, a dastardly murder using the um, the statistical comparative textual methods of the new chronology. Um, That's such a good idea. That's like hyper postmodern. Oh my god, Jake, you should write that. That's a great idea. Like, it should have like flashbacks to like. The the siege of Troy with Achilles using like a matchlock musket, <laughs> you know, before the walls of Troy. Yeah, the genres could be blended. Yeah. Like, like uh, have the in the name of the rose part that sort of investigation mystery, and then you could retell the story, the history of the world on the largest canvas possible. Yeah, a- a- Abraham and the Abraham and his sons and the and the and the Hebrew tribe all armed with arquebusiers. Enforcing at gunpoint the neighboring tribe to get circumcised. That's an opening scene. If I were a Hollywood exec, I'd buy that. (laughs) All right, guys. So I think um, that's have we have we exhausted this? Is uh, Jacob? Do you have any more tidbits to share, or is this a good place to uh, to call it a day? No, I mean I, I I think that. That about wraps it up. I guess I would just say that um, uh, always examine the provenance of the um, writers who are hired to do guest columns for the Wall Street Journal editorial pages. (laughs) (laughs) 
It's a very good warning. Words to live by. Um, all right, guys, thank you so much for joining us. Jacob and Matt, really appreciate it. Uh, will, American Prestige listeners, we'll see you on uh, the flip side. Yeah. Das Badania, Tovarishi. <laughs>